Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come? What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice. This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. One of the guys that he was working with, one of the biggest guys he he was servicing at the time, said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I can't pay you. You know, there's no way I could pay you. I don't have the money today, et cetera. And uh, he went back to the office where my mom was working. And uh, he came in kind of all upset and crying about the whole deal. And my mom said, well, I'm going to go talk to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mother left and uh, went to go talk to him. And she was about eight months pregnant. And he had a bunch of customers sitting in his floor and he said, please, you know, you got to pay us. You know, we're, we're not going to be able to, to pay our drivers. They're all going to quit. And this is going to be a big problem for us. If you can't, you know, get current right now, we're, we're going to go out of business. And that guy reluctantly got the checkbook out and wrote the check to my mom. He came in and gave it to my dad and we made payroll. My guest today is Mason George. Mason is an entrepreneur and business executive with IMC Companies. IMC Companies was started by his father, Mark George, 40 years ago with just one driver. Today, it is one of the top intermodal carriers in the United States. At close to a billion dollars in revenue, it's quite the story to take a company from one driver to where it is today. Our supply chain is more critical today than ever before. The United States is the largest importer globally, and it's no secret that there have been many challenges with how goods come to the USA and how they move throughout the rest of the country. This interview is much more than just about this company and what success looks like. I had a great time with Mason, and this is a great interview where you will hear the skill sets it takes to take a company from one driver to over a billion in revenue and growing. Being all in with your capital and time while inspiring people to build something they are proud of. Hard lessons learned, family life and all, how these experiences teach you how to live and operate better in all aspects of life. Building technology from the bottom up versus others doing it from the top down and why they have an advantage, plus much more. Please enjoy this week's episode with Mason George. 
Mason, great to see you, man. Good seeing you too, Sam. Happy New Year. Thank you, brother. You too. Man, I've read a quote. This, I think, came from somebody, key part of your company, a guy named Randy Wright. Is that true? Does he work with y'all? Oh, yeah. Randy Wright, uh, he's been with us for 30 years, almost, if not more than that. Um, so he's been around for, for a long time and probably one of the most skilled operators we have uh, in the team. So he's legit. He said in 1995, IMCG was a small company, and I wasn't sure about it at first. It became evident after a first month or two that Mark had a passion and a vision. It's been fun to watch the company grow and grow it did. We were talking a little bit earlier, but from what I saw, there's over 500,000 trucking companies in the United States. And I know that those can be very small companies, quote unquote, and larger companies. But from what I saw, y'all started 40 years ago with one truck. And now you're the sixth or seventh largest intermodal trucking company in the United States with over 2,300 drivers. And y'all are doing close to $500 million in revenue. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, well, our revenue, we're going to be over a billion probably um, in 2021. If we are, if we don't hit that, we're going to be right under it. The last six months have just been gangbusters for us. Obviously, I think there's been a lot of news out there about how, how difficult supply chain is. So our revenue has grown as, you know, obviously supply, demand for our services is out, outpacing the supply. Um, but we're also uh, getting a lot of new business, which is fun too. So we've had an incredible two or three years of growth um, on the top line. And, you know, it's been, it's been a great, great ride so far. Was there ever a moment where a significant challenge or unexpected event where you, you or your family might've thought that y'all might not make it or make payroll? <laughs> Man, I'd like to say it feels like we have significant challenges daily, right? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I'd say in my time, have I ever been worried about being able to pay my employees? Um, let, me, well, let me put it like this, right? To, to, to say a little bit more clearly, people who have a hard time paying their employees and making payroll, usually it's a cash flow issue, right? There's two types of cash flow issues. You can have a cash flow issue where um, you're not making enough money and you're upside down to be able to pay your vendors or your customers, or I'm sorry, your, your, your employees, or you can be um, on the other side of that and have um, not enough cash flow just to fund your receivables and the growth that you have, right? And we've actually been in both spots. When my dad first started, he tells a great story about how there was a guy and uh, they owed him about $10,000, right? And he had just started. It was like 1984. He's two years into the business. He's having some success. He's making money, but he doesn't have the cash flow to pay his drivers. So he says that he has to go and find his local customers because they were all local at that time. And he's going and knocking on their doors on Thursday afternoon, trying to get a check so he can put it in the bank for payroll on Friday. And one of the guys that he was working with, one of the biggest guys he, um, he was servicing at the time um, said, you know, I hate, I'm sorry, I can't pay you. You know, there's no way I could pay you. I don't have the money today, et cetera. And uh, he went back to the office where my mom was working and uh, he came in kind of all upset and crying about the whole deal. And my mom said, well, I'm going to go talk to that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so my mother left and uh, went to go talk to him. And she was about eight months pregnant. 
and he had a bunch of customers sitting in his floor and he <laughs> said, please, you know, you got to pay us, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to, to pay our drivers. They're all going to quit. And this is going to be a big problem for us. If you can't, you know, get current right now, we're, we're going to go out of business. And that guy reluctantly got the checkbook out and wrote the check to my mom who came in and gave it to my dad and we made payroll. Uh, that guy unfortunately goes out of business, I think a few months later. So he was having his own kind of cash flow issues, but you know, so we've been on that side of things and then just, to, you know, on, on the most recent, as oddly as it sounds, um, we were outgrowing our credit lines over the summer based on, you know, how quick things were going. So, um, we had to call our um, our banks in line to say, look, you know, our projections just aren't matching up with what's actually happening. And it, these are good stories to tell because we're outgrowing what we projected. But, you know, banks don't love surprises. You know, they don't like yeah. the idea of like, well, how did that happen? You know, <laughs> like how, how did you get it this wrong? And you have to go in and say, well, I don't know if you've read the Wall Street Journal, lately, but, you know. <laughs> Um, a lot of stuff's happening in shipping and and we're in a good spot. And then they say, okay, you're right. Let's go talk to it and, and let's get some money. And I mean, the thing about that that helps us by far is we've got great team leadership. Um, my dad obviously is steering the whole thing, but we've got good CFOs that help us plan this stuff. And those guys will call me every day with our cash balance saying, this is how it looks. And, you know, we're, we're, we're expecting to, to redo our bank deal by the end of the month. And we think we're going to get there, et cetera. So, in, in 2021, we weren't supposed to do any new bank deals. We just uh, closed one in 2020, in November. We ended up doing two more in 21 just to keep up, right? Um, and we're in a lot better shape now because we have some some pretty reasonable folks that we work with. But, you know, for a, for a different company and a different bank, they might say, well, we don't want this. You know, we don't want the exposure to trucking right now. It's a risk. You guys are booming. It's good. But I don't really feel like loaning you the money. So, you got to deal with it. And it's been a good position for us, I think. And we're not in that spot today just due to the leadership that we have all contributing really at high levels right now. Yeah. We didn't waste any time getting right into the good stuff. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Did your father work for another company before he started with one truck? Well, I think what he'll tell the masses is this is the only thing that he's ever done, Right. But if you um, if you if you really press him for it and you remind him, he uh, actually so he's from Nashville area, actually Franklin, Tennessee. And uh, my grandfather, his dad was in the trucking business, too. He was in the refrigerated trucking business, which is different from Intermobile. And in 81, he had just uh, married my mom and um, my grandfather said, hey, Mark, I think you should look at doing this container stuff in Memphis. Memphis has a really big rail hub. Um, you should go out there and see if you can't figure out what's going on with these international containers, right? And so my grandfather started a company with, he was a silent, he and my grandmother were a silent owner. My dad was an owner and there were two other guys that were part owners in this business too, right? So there was actually four owners in this entity that just started up in 81. That thing goes out of business in short order. Like I'm talking about in the next five or six months. Because of too many people involved or? Yeah, that's probably something to do with it. Yeah. So, and, 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 you know, probably cash flow issues, right? I mean, doing trucking business is, is very cash intensive, right? 
And uh, what he did, which was pretty smart, you know, he, he always told me, like, I didn't really, he wasn't really affected by that because guess what? I mean, he's, you know, he's 20 years old, you know, he's going to school in Memphis. Um, he's working the business kind of part-time and, but he sees a lot of future with it. He just thinks that, you know, he didn't really lose anything. He didn't put a lot of money up to run this business. He just was said, Hey, let's just open it up and, and, and get a charter. So then he starts his own company, which is called Intermodal Cartage in September of 82. And that's his business that he started. And he decided he didn't want any partners. <laughs> it yeah. was going to be him or the highway. And um, he, he operated like that for a long time. That gave him a lot of runway. What about a sense of optimism in the middle of chaos? For example, you know, the research that I saw, and it might have been inaccurate from a revenue standpoint, but you know, around 400 million, 500 million, depending on which year. And it laid out these other companies and it said, you know, IMC, top six, seven intermodal companies in the country. And then you come back and say, actually, in a very kind of kind way, a billion. <laughs> um, and you're talking about the explosive growth. I mean, there's obviously been a complete bullwhip supply chain and a lot of other things going on. But you're talking about, from a cash standpoint, from a growth standpoint, restrictions, adversity, a lot of ambiguity. And now you're talking not one truck or 15 trucks. You're talking over 2000, somewhere between 2,000 to 3,000 drivers and over a billion dollars as a, as a private family company. What gives you a sense of endurance in chaos or unpredictability? Ooh. You know, uh, I think... And this is this is not Mason's quote. I, I read this in, a, in just a recent book, but it was uh, a seal talking about the value of a team. And he said that good teams thrive in chaotic times. Right. And I think that in the world that we live in right now, we would not be able to do what we're doing without a great team. And it's a force multiplier for us. Right. Um, there's things that that I can't do well that you know, honestly, that my dad does a lot better than I do. And there's things that he doesn't do well that I do a relatively good job with, as well as all the people that kind of work with us. So um, I feel like my my job lately has been, you know, how do I keep people focused in this time and keep them contributing, not just in a general sense, but maybe even specifically on what they can do to make a difference each day at the, at the company. Right. And that's kind of been my goal is to kind of keep people inspired on what they're doing, which, which sounds kind of funny. Like, how do you, how do you inspire somebody to do, you know, trucking work? You know, it's not the most sexy of jobs, right? Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're waking up, you're pre-tripping a truck at four or five in the morning, you go and waiting in lines to do stuff. I mean, it's, it's, it's a really difficult job. Um, not not to mention just the stress of being on the road in a 18 wheeler environment is um, very, very difficult. But, you know, the key on that is, is that the guys need to feel connected to their jobs as much as they can. Right. They need to feel like we're partners in this whole transaction. And that's exactly what my dad would say. Um, not all of those guys are just our employees or they're viewed as partners and integral pieces to what we're doing. And that goes from drivers all the way, you know, the people in the, in the office working this stuff and, who we broker to as vendors and who we, um, you know, partner with as customers and all the above. What do you think gave your dad 
the foresight and the wisdom to run things in a sophisticated fashion at a very early point within the company, early strive for that? You know, there's probably a, there's probably a multifaceted answer to that. He is a um, he's a very interesting guy. If there's one kind of characteristic, I think that I'd pin him with, I'd say that he is a he's a very disciplined optimist. Okay, <laughs> and the optimist of him always says that tomorrow is going to continue to get better, right? So even in 08, when things were crashing and we actually didn't need to hire drivers as aggressively as we have pretty much our entire being. He was always preaching that it's not going to be this bad for this long. We know that this is a good product. We're going to continue doing what we're doing and make it better. And then from an operational standpoint, I don't know anybody more disciplined than, than my dad, you know, he doesn't necessarily like to um, be overly aggressive. He likes to be, um, orderly in his operations. He's extremely OCD. You know, that guy, he was, I was talking to him this morning and he was wearing me out on two or three different things operationally, what we're doing. And he gets it because he kind of helped create all these processes. You know, he also had the, the, the foresight in the early nineties when personal computers started becoming really kind of mainstream to develop an operating system that would be conducive to what we're doing in our in our business right and i think that by itself has separated us from our competition for many years because you know you got a guy like my dad who is telling people who are on staff what needs to be done in the system to produce good operating results whereas our competition is trying to lobby an outside entity or company to do the same thing, right? And a lot gets lost in translation with that. One being that they're a software company trying to profit from the software licenses that they have. We're a trucking company trying to make our operation better for our clients and drivers, right? So um, he had the foresight to do that a long time ago, which I think was a really good thing. So all of our operating technology is still in-house and still being really, I would say, managed at a really high degree level by by his vision of what needs to continue to happen. What's it like for you in your role in this season and where things are headed to get this experience and this exposure in the first 12, 14 years of your career? Oh, man. In a family business, but it sounds like a very well-run, innovative family business versus a lot of family businesses where people get slack because of being family or because of big revenues and there's not that sense of accountability or discipline that can sometimes be there. Yeah. You know, that's, that's an interesting one because when you look at, you know, some of the scenarios you were kind of outlining earlier is like, yeah, that's the owner's kid. You can't talk to him. You know, he's in the corner just kind of collecting a paycheck. And I always kind of, thought to um, not have that perception, right? And and that was the last thing that I really wanted is the people to view me as somebody who was not here to make a difference or to work hard or, or do any of that. And, you know, I guess kudos to my dad for putting me in a spot where I never felt like I had the authority to do anything other than actually just work hard to what we're doing. So that's uh, that's kind of been my approach is 
you know, it is a, uh, my dad does own the majority shares in this um, entity. He's got a few minority partners that are strategic only, right? They're all in the business. So it's a privately held business. And that's been, I think, really advantageous for us. When I'm out talking and, and talking to, to, to people like you who are interested in what we're doing and how we're doing it, the immediate sense that I do get is that people um, do look at me as I'm still young. You know, I'm 34 this year. Uh, 35 next year, I guess. But the perception still is, man, you're, you know, I, am I really talking to the right guy sometimes? I get that a lot less now because I probably look like I'm 40 um, and I'm, I've been working um, that long anyway. But when you're, when you're in your, you know, mid twenties, they're like, is that really the guy I should be talking to? And um, that room's changed a little bit for me over the last few years too. So the the older I'm getting, I think that that's less of a question as well as, you know, some of the results we're able to do, right? I mean, it's not just me trying to sell a service that they're going to let me, you know, try out a few times. It's, you know, hey, we've, we're getting a name out there a little bit better than we have been. Yeah. Was there a specific time or memory that comes to mind of being given a lot of responsibility at a young age and learning something the hard way in a very painful way, but that might have been crucial for you to kind of take on this much responsibility at a younger age? Right when um, this was eight years ago, so I would have been um, 26, right? Right when I, um, I, I, my career started when I was, you know, right out of college, um, I moved to Nashville and then my dad let me open up an office in Kansas City. And then when we moved, we were moving, Melanie and I were moving back from Kansas City to Memphis. And I just opened up a new division for the company and I was the president of that, had a uh, ownership stake in that, and was trying to grow our non-asset division where we would be moving cargo essentially to and not just within the United States, but to and from the United States as well, right? So we might originate a shipment in Hong Kong and take it all the way to Memphis, Tennessee, right? Like trying to be a, and I know some people might not know this, but like a broker, uh, full end-to-end broker. Yeah, you, the official term would be a non-vessel operating common carrier. But you're essentially right, being a being a, a broker of international freight, right? Okay. And um, I said to myself, that's really what I want to do. I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and I think we could make a big splash um, with our with our clients doing this. And um, I, I did that for about a year until I found out, hey, I need to. I, I'm not getting the scale that I need. Because I'm not able to go buy, you know, 200 slots at a discounted price to resell them to my customers. I'm going to buy a company and roll them into our, 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 our operating companies and be able to get the scale I need. That was kind of the strategy. So I found this company in North Carolina called Global Shipping Shippers Association. And um, we spent $3 million painfully buying this company that had about... 15 employees. There was a, a married couple that really ran the business. And I spent the better part of three years trying to make that thing work. <laughs> and I could not do that. It was very humbling, right? So it was, um, hey, why? I don't understand why you're not taking this leap of faith with me. It was always, I don't understand the business. I'm not capable of what they're doing. They're very condescending the whole time. And a lot of that, I think, was they 
honestly just weren't the right partners for us, right? So I had to take a big piece of humble pie and get my violin pity party out for one and, you know, essentially terminate all those people, you know, in one day, you know, I, I got rid of some over a period of time, some of the really toxic people um, I was able to get out within about a year or two when I felt like it was the right time. But, you know, where I was, I had, at that time I had like 25 people working for me. And on a Tuesday in September of 2018, I brought 19 people into my office and fired all of them that day. Right. Not just all together, but one by one. And it wasn't, a, I guess it wasn't a fire because they weren't doing anything necessarily wrong, but we had to do something different. Right. And um, I didn't like the business. I didn't like what we were doing. And I felt like there was a lot more opportunity um, not being a broker internationally to and from the United States, just but being a broker kind of within the United States. So I took it all the way down to like six employees which that was a really hard day. I hate doing all that, but it was the right thing for the business. And honestly, it was probably the right thing for those employees too, because the longer that they were hanging out, the less opportunity they had to go find something different that would have been a lot more fostering than what we were doing. So that was in 2018. And then you kind of wind up what we're doing now in 2021, just kind of with what my division is on the brokerage side, we've got over 120 people who work for us, you know? So by all stretches of the imagination, we're wildly successful with this new plan that we've implemented. And I wouldn't have gotten there though. I, you know, I think people like to ask me, would you, would you regret that? You know, would you go back and try to buy that company again? Um, and no, I mean, on a new opportunity, you know, I know what I'm looking for. I wouldn't, I wouldn't find, you know, and seek out something like that, obviously, but I'm not upset about that opportunity either because I think it made me really understand more about the business than I ever had before. And then number two, I think um, the dynamics of people, acquisitions work, I think, just because of people, right? And it's easy to say that. People say that all the time. But, you know, it was a bad partnership because the people didn't believe in what we were doing, right? And if you don't believe in what you're doing, it's hard to inspire people to work for you, you know, and, and get the most out of them. Have you ever wished that you... Or have you ever thought about not being in this business? Yeah, that's funny. You know, um, I I think about that, you know, wondering, kind of daydreaming. I wonder if there's something, you know, that I would want to do different. And I'll tell you, I always wanted to be an NFL quarterback, right? But that never really worked out. So Could have been a nose guard. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, but, a, but a 5'10 guy that weighs 200 pounds isn't going to make it really far. So, you know, but I'll tell you, trucking is a is the ultimate, and this is kind of what we were saying before we started, it's the ultimate entrepreneur's game. You know, um, you can will the success of a trucking company with 12, 30 trucks and, and be really successful. You know, and those guys, by all means, are making good money and they are, are, are serving, seeing their, their customers and their drivers and the people that work for them really well. And they've got a great lifestyle. All that's really good, uh, but I think if I if I you know if I could do it all over again, I think I'd still pick the same thing we're doing today. I just have a passion for serving people, you know, and I think in the trucking business you have a good opportunity to do to build a business, and then you get to serve the employees that work for you, and you get to serve your customers, and it's a it's a it's an opportunity like no other. I think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, something I was thinking about before we started. There's another company that comes to mind that I know well, but their emphasis on internal education and training exceeds any other 
company in their field that's of their similar size and even companies that have the most market share in the country. And if anybody's going to be e-commerce heavy, you can't truly affect things in a granular way unless you have that training and that expertise at the final touch point, so to speak. But when I was preparing for our time together, it seems that your company that started with incredibly humble beginnings, still early on created, it sounds like somewhat of a advanced training program within the company. Is that true? I don't know if I'd say that it's been um, kind of a unique training experience. I think what, what I'd probably say is that what we like to do on your first day, if you were to come in, we'd say, we're going to put you right in the middle of the action, right? And we're going to sit you, um, and our office is, is really neat how it's set up. We just moved to Carville, so it's even better. But Shilling Farms. Yeah, there you go. We have a great, it almost looks like a, like a, my dad calls it Wall Street, <laughs> as crazy as that is. But it literally looks like, you know, we've got a bunch of desks pushed together. Everything's open. You can hear all the conversations. And I walk out there as much as I can. I enjoy actually working out there as much as I can. And um, in my office, I try to take some calls that I guess could be sensitive and maybe not everybody needs to hear all those things that go on. But what I like to do is have an open door policy. Anybody can come in and ask anything. And when I see a problem or something in the industry, I try to talk to those people who are actually operating in it to educate them the best I can. Right. So to your point, you know, we do have a management trainee program. We do have a, just a, we have a, a, a full-time person on our IT team that teaches people how to use our system, but people learn the best in our company by being out there and trying to soak up as much of that vernacular that we're going, that we're saying, there's so many acronyms. It's just difficult. I mean, there's, we got pages and pages of acronyms, but the real value I think that these guys have with us is being able just to hear all the different conversations that people have every day and then ask questions, you know, and we like to throw them in the fire, get them doing stuff as early as possible. Um, and that gets people really uh, rolling down the right trajectory as quick as quick as we can. I mean, there's a theme, but when people are doing it and making decisions and feeling over their head, that's what you're saying helps get people going in the best way. Yeah. And, and that's the number one concern people have is, well, what if I make a mistake? Right. And uh, the good news is, is that, you know, we're in trucking. Right. I mean, the worst mistake typically only costs you, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know. So in the grand scheme of things, you, you find that mistake and you can fix it. I mean, I'm not saying we've made hadn't made worse mistakes than that. We, sure, we certainly have. I mean, we've rerouted we've routed cargo the wrong places. We've um, had to redo a lot of different things. It definitely costs us a lot of money. But, you know, for somebody just starting out that that needs to, to learn, we, we kind of encourage those mistakes because, they're talking points and they're things that they remember. I mean, we've had people in our office crying before saying, I can't believe I forgot to dispatch a container out and it sat in the yard for, you know, two or three weeks and racked up two or $3,000. And it's like, Hey, you know, it's a learning moment, you know, just part of your education fund that we put that into, we're going to get up and move on. But if we didn't allow people to make decisions and all the transactions that we do every day, I mean, we'd be toast, right. Wouldn't be where we are today. So our, our, our thought process is get them in and get them in, you know, the saddle early so we can start learning. It sounds like too, the way the company has been run. I mean, from an earning standpoint, from a reinvestment standpoint, 
everything has been all in on this company the entire time to keep going above and beyond what most people do to try to create the best experience you possibly can. Is that a fair statement without it sounding too, uh, without me exaggerating anything? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I like to say I never regretted betting on myself yet, you know, and a lot of that is true to what you said earlier. We're not taking a lot of money out. We're not trying to really diversify and do a bunch of different types of trucking or different types of businesses. We feel very passionate about what we do. We feel like we've got a good spot in the market and, you know, we're only, you know, two or 3% of the entire intermodal volume. You know, there's a lot more volume out there to go get. So um, we feel like we've got a good strategy in place and we want to keep implementing it. And, and by doing that, we leave a lot of money in the company and we spend a lot of money on IT and infrastructure and resources. You know, um, you can go out to our yards and see what kind of facilities we'd like to run. And um, there's a difference between a low cost provider and what we do. You know, we, and we like to um, be kind of as not flashy by any means, but um, have things professional and, and, and put together. I saw, you know, I guess a quote, it said, we've done it the right way in the hard way and taking our time. It doesn't seem like, I mean, 40 years, obviously, I'm sure now overnight success, but I know y'all have, I guess, partnerships with operators that are part of your company in the Midwest, Northeast, East Coast, Southeast, Gulf Coast, Ohio, West Coast. Is that right? Yeah. So um, there's two things in that statement that I, I think we probably important to know, right? Um, to your to your last question, uh, we have our own minority partners in the business, right? So we have um, seven different operating companies and there's, there's normally an ownership stake in every one of them, right? And the reason for that is to kind of foster a entrepreneurial mindset to where you own your own business it's um, supported by administrative offices and kind of shared services in Memphis. But the guy in Chicago is able to feel like it's his own business, which is true, it is. But he's got enough support on a national level if he needed, you know, additional cash flow to grow his business or he needed HR support for something that he's not familiar with. It allows him to kind of focus in on growing his business and being as profitable as he can be, Right. And in our world, um, goodwill and relationships really carry, carry the day. So having that goodwill with a minority partner has been a great strategy for us um, to continue to grow. And then, you know, to your, to your other point, we've done it the hard way. There are a lot of IT companies that are trying to tap into the intermodal space. And what we have seen, you know, they used to kind of keep me up at night thinking, you know, this company, Uber is going to come in and you know, be able to replicate what we've done in short order and all these guys are going to start following suit to what these guys are doing. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it can't be done because I feel like maybe one day, you know, there's an answer out there. You know, we're trying to be that answer. We're trying to roll out our own app. But the difference between us and Uber is that, you know, we've got a lot of knowledge and expertise and experience putting all these processes together and putting them into a system that works right from the bottom up and not the top down. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and we're a trucking company trying to deliver loads, not an IT company trying to set up a software solution and walk away. So um, that's, that's kind of an answer to the hard way versus the, you know, information technology way of, 
you know, there's a lot of noise in our, in our, in our industry right now. I mean, Silicon Valley is pumping a ton of money into technology companies trying to disrupt our space right now. And, you know, that's a threat for sure, but this is kind of the way that we've done it, that we feel like it has a, the right recipe for continuing success. And that's what we're going after. Yeah. I'm curious if I could maybe ask a follow-up there because, you know, you mentioned Uber Freight. We hadn't talked about Flexport yet, and I'll try to include info on this. Sure. Some of these names, or you should know who Uber is, but Flexport. But, you know, thinking about like Zillow from the summer, shutting down the arm of them, you know, raising money and flipping homes, et cetera, just software from a real high level macro scale. But what you're describing is knowing the business, being excellent at operating it, having four decades in, all the experience of all the people that are with the company and building it from the ground up and doing it in a way that continues to make customers happy and leveraging your expertise and knowledge versus coming in because you can create you know, great technology, good interfaces. But at the end of the day, you know, if the experience is not enjoyable or if it's painful or if it's costing people money day in, day out, miscommunication, it blows up. And to some degree, I feel like that's what we're talking about here. I'm just curious from your standpoint, is there any, are there any lessons over the last two to three years to where you've felt or seen that it doesn't matter how much money you raise or how much technology you try to build out, but you can't cut corners on certain things? Oh man. Yeah. The, the one of the name escapes me, but it's um, one of the Silicon Valley guys basically said this of Uber, right? I mean, Uber is the, the Uber application is so easy that his cat can do it, you know? (laughs) So like in terms of his cat could program the whole thing, uh, which I'm sure it's a really smart cat to be able to do that. But you know, the, the shell of that is that what is the genius behind Uber? You know, is it this great piece of technology? No, you know, it's, it's really not that wild. If you think about it, the guy pulls a phone out, he wants a ride, he hits a button and it, you know, somebody who is looking to uh, give rides, you know, sets that up and there's a monetary transaction, right? Whereas, you know, the, the, the genius behind Uber was finding willing customers to jump into cars that weren't uniform, that weren't yellow like taxis, and then finding drivers who uh, were willing to make side gig money on the street every Saturday night, taking a bunch of drunk people around, you know? So um, I think people like to look at things differently in the sense that, oh, wow, what a great tech company, you know? And it's, yeah, it is a tech company. You can't say it's not because it's, it's an app. It's all those things. But the idea right there was sound, you know, we're going to find a bunch of willing participants to participate in the new market for ride sharing. And now that's here. Right. Whereas people trying to take that same Uberization methodology to a lot of different things, you know, it's it's failing in the sense that and and I'll just say it's speaking to my space. It's failing in our space because it's not creating a new marketplace. There's already willing participants. There's already willing shippers and customers and all those things that are trying to work. Um, on this every day, right? So it's it's not creating a new capacity. So that's why that's having a hard time, I think. Um, and to cut corners to do that, I mean, we've got competition who's out there, you know, 
paying drivers more money than they're collecting on the freight just to participate in an app, right? That's just not sustainable, right? You can pay somebody $700 to do a load across town Memphis and only collect $200 and you'll get a lot of business in this world, you know? But how long is that, you know, outlook for you, right? There's just a matter of time before somebody either replicates you or they go in and say, we're just not going to do this business anymore. What do you think gave you all the choice to kind of be so forward thinking in your space? Because you could have just ridden the wave, the momentum, like ridden the economic trends like right now, but not really try to bulldog through to build your own technology from the ground up to do these things that require a lot more stress, a lot more people, and a lot more risk from a technological standpoint. But at the same time, you know, you've established this credibility in the marketplace, in this industry. Where did that choice come from? Because there's a lot of people that are happy with their business. They've built a good business. They make an outstanding living doing it. And they can sell it one day and make a bunch of money. But it seems like y'all are just pouring everything you have back into this to truly try to you know, drive forward in this industry, unlike anyone else that's a privately held company. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. You know, when you put it like that, it sounds not as crazy as when we talk about doing it. But I think it comes from, and it's not just the guys at the very top. I mean, it's everybody. We're looking at this as there's so much opportunity for us, right? We see a better day. If we could get you know, three or four things done in our system, it would change what we're doing. If we could get five or six things done for our drivers in their app, it would be awesome. If we could, you know, get our customers to sign up for this feature, that would be great. So it's always fighting for that better tomorrow in the sense that um, we see opportunity and there's so much for what we're doing right now. We would, we're foolish for not doubling down on that. Um, I had a conversation. I mean, it was even today. We do this almost, you know, air, weekly, it seems like. We're not taking advantage of enough opportunity out there, right? There's too many of them out. Um, we need more spend on tech. We need more infrastructure. We need more of this. And it's not, it's just a matter of being able to do it all, right? Um, unfortunately, IT takes a long time. And also, you know, building new terminals and all that stuff takes a lot of time. You can't even order a truck you know, in 2022 and expect it to be here in 2022, right? You used to be able to put stuff out with a few months before you started, you know, an order out for a few months and then you start getting trucks to arrive. Now you can't do that. You're, you're a year and a half out. So being where we are now, um, it's the answer to that question, I think would be pretty simple. It's, you know, we can't help ourselves. We, <laughs> we, we like this business. We think there's a lot of opportunity. So we're, we're staying after it and we want to keep doubling down on what we're doing. What have y'all gotten right to go from, again, just to frame it, but to go from one truck 40 years ago to the capacity and the volume in the operation today? What have y'all focused on and gotten right that gets a lot of people hung up? I think, I mean, I'm going to say the people for sure. You know, we try to have a good culture of people who want to contribute and have a good time at work and, and all those. those are, that's probably the easy answer you should say. Um, from, from the guy out there who says, okay, I already know that. That's, that's an easy one. I would say for us, it's been being extremely disciplined with how we allocate our financials and our money, right? 
we track that stuff weekly. So we know what we did last week and what we're invoicing this week. We know what kind of cash flow situation we're in. We have a great financial team that's really driving those numbers the way that we can watch that probably better than most people care to. A lot of people like to operate in this trash bag mentality, you know, like I'm going to get all the money, put it in a trash bag. And then when you ask for money, I'll send it out and I'll look down to make sure I got enough later. Right. We, we avoid that as much as we can. We like to know, you know, how we're doing every month, every quarter, every year. And that bleeds into a lot of other things, right? That kind of methodology and mentality helps you with your banks. It helps you with how you set payroll for your people and your drivers how you price customers. So, you know, to answer your question, I think the one thing I've, I know we've done extremely well is watch the numbers in a way that just permeates throughout the whole company. What about from these regional partnerships that you have to tie it in to the bigger picture? And I, my guess would be that maybe early on, it might've been a challenge to try to sell that vision or get people to play ball for the bigger picture. But then when you get it to a certain place, you looked at the shared opportunity. But my guess would be that might've been very hard earlier on. Is that true? So my dad's got probably half a dozen examples of locations that were all, you know, we'll we'll back the clock up here to early nineties, right? So my dad's been running this company since 82 He's been doing it 10, 12 years. He's expanded into major other port areas like New Orleans, Savannah, Houston, Charleston, Atlanta, Nashville, all of those kind of Southeast locations. And basically did that because he was regional, right? And and something that he started picking up on is that every time, you know, his location like Savannah would get up to a certain threshold, some of his key people would uh, raise their hands up and say, Hey, Mark, we're quitting and we're going to go start our own company. And by the way, we're taking all the drivers with us, you know? (laughs) So he would say, well, this is a big problem. You know, I've got, um, I'm all the way in Memphis. I got to get on a plane and fly all the way to Savannah to deal with this kind of mass exodus of all the people that want to go start a new company. They know all the drivers and they're all their customers. So basically the only thing I've got is the, you know, the rent on the land that I'm, I'm holding, which is pretty easy because it's there's a lot of that stuff available at that time. And he didn't have a lot of barriers for people to compete with them or um, leave. So what he started doing, and the first guy he did this with was Jeff Banton. In um, 2002, he, he kind of started finally figuring this stuff out. And he had a, a few terminals together and it was a guy out of Memphis. And he said, look, Jeff, I, I'd like you to take ownership of this company that we're going to start. And it's not just IMCG anymore. We're going to put these four or five terminals and we're going to call them Atlantic Intermodal Services or AIS, which is why we start getting all these acronyms. And Jeff said, okay, that's great. If I can be a, a minority owner in this business, I'm, I'm ready for that. Let's go do it. And that was the first minority company that we kind of, we started. My dad still owned 51% of that company, uh, but Jeff owns 49%. He still does today, I guess 20 years later and um, has grown that company and treats it like his own. So he found the right partner 
to, to work with that my dad kind of gave them this right foundation. Because a lot of people in our world, there's a lot of people who can string together good drivers and, and good customers, you know, on a limited basis. But there's very few that can do all that for all, all the different opportunities in the world. Yeah. A ton of decisions, a ton of forward action and momentum and a ton of setbacks. But yeah. resiliency and then figuring out what works and then meaningful ownership in these deals that then truly create ownership in these different regions around the country, but then support the overall brand itself with very good operations where you cannot consistently have that kind of service or buy-in through just people that are not as committed. Yeah. And always looking for the next best thing, right? And when you found the guy that could make his, you know, he feels like this is a career choice for him, right? This is what I want to do the rest of my career. That, that really made a big difference. From an internal standpoint, I'm curious, you know, you've talked a lot about people, excitement, energy. There's also a lot of press and negativity about working corporately or working for the man or the woman working in companies. But one of the beautiful parts of this work is you get to understand people of all levels And you get to understand the different needs that people have and the things that matter to them. And it challenges you not to think of every person as you see the world or as you think, but you just see the nuances and the uniqueness that different people have. And then not to mention just the American society itself or through other types of movement momentum through like different types of currency and finance and stuff like that. There's just this individualistic tone that is just kind of, it seems like very weaved throughout culture right now, but you're trying, you're not trying, you're building a company that sounds like it literally doubled within just a few years. And now you, y'all pushed into the billion dollar mark. What's that like for the people involved? What, what do they want to be a part of this bigger story? What keeps people just committed when just career longevity is, seems to be, at just an all-time, uh, the turnover at an all-time high, not seems to be is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think every, you know, most of the pages you turn in the wall street journal or the papers these days are all about the great resignation, you know, and how do we combat that? And it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Um, I haven't experienced that with our, with our current business. And I think that's probably attributable to, to a few things. Um, one is I, I believe truly that people like to feel like they're part of something, right? So when you're part of the growth and the success of the company over the years, they feel connected to it. And there's a bond there about, you know, it was, it was funny. I've got, I got a few people who, um, you know, I get, most people that we hire are almost right out of college these days. But um, I heard one of the, uh, uh, of the ladies that were talking to me and they were saying, do you remember the good old days, Mason? And I'm laughing to myself and it's like, you know, it's funny the good old days that you're talking about were like a year ago, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> it's, that's great that you're saying good old days because you already had this kind of fond memory of how things used to be. And that's how much we've changed with you only been here for a little bit. Right. And then I also say, you know, just to, to echo that, um, you know, I got a, I got a great, um, what I would call great number two guy with Robert Counts, who works with me every day. And one, one thing that um, Robert and I have that, that works really well, one, 
we're two really different people, right? We're, he's a little bit of a, uh, of a um, domineering personality. I'm a little bit of a, uh, um, like to hear everybody's opinion kind of thing. And um, it's worked really well for us. Um, one, because he's able to kind of go do some of the harder conversations that I don't want to have, right? <laughs> and, and he's able to kind of be the CO while I'm the captain of the ship. And, uh, but that's, that's, that's been a really great team because we, even though we have these two different kind of approaches to um, maybe tackling an issue, I, I say that and bring him into this is that he's been very instrumental in um, executing a good vision for the company, right? Um, and one of the big visions I wanted to have coming back to this great resignation is I want to have a place for people who want to come to work, right? And who feel like, you know, I'm not monitoring how long, you know, they were out to lunch or how long they were uh, spending on a certain task. You know, we kind of were able to to know who's slacking and who's not, and who's having trouble with things and, and mix things up. And Robert's been really great with that because, you know, if there's one thing that, that I think he does really well, he and I know how to go out and kind of stir the pot and make people laugh, you know. Um, we, we like to go work on the floor as much as we can and be with everybody. And, and doing that, I think, has brought a different approach where I think our employees feel more connected to what we're doing and they feel like they're learning the most and they feel like they're contributing the most. And we're able to kind of call everybody out by name still, which is great, and, 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 and know how they're contributing on a daily basis. Yeah. So what you're saying is there's a high level of performance, but you're constantly trying which kind of this goes back to the earlier part of the conversation. You're just trying to tell the story over and over again while making sure that mediocre performance doesn't exist. Yeah. And, um, and I'll say this too. We, so we look at mediocre performance as teaching opportunities, right? We can teach you how to operate a little better, you know, and that's kind of been the mantra. We're not, we're not going to get there and yell and scream at you for, for missing something that, you know, you never missed before, you know, that's not really our style. You know, and honestly, we're not really going to be the ones that yell and scream at you if you miss something a hundred times. We're just going to say, hey, that job's not good for you anymore. <laughs> we're That's probably on us because, you know, the first time is on you for not knowing. The next hundred times are on me trying to show you. And then maybe the hundred first time, we're just going to put you on something different, you know, because as long as you want to to contribute and, and be a part of the group here, we're happy to have you. And and then also, you know, playing ESPN and in TV and loud music around helps too. That, 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 that kind of helps <laughs> the culture. So it sounds like you're excited. You're excited. I mean, we hadn't talked much about the future of the opportunity. It just outside looking in, I mean, you've already said y'all crossing the billion threshold, some of the, the biggest transportation companies in, in the world, but definitely the United States are, you know, several billion. And it sounds like you're very optimistic about the runway. And for 40 years, y'all been plowing away through, training through raising people up through you know being very very tight operationally finding people that you can spin out and then go put and put on their own i mean there's a system and it's been it sounds like 40 years of a lot of just pushing the plow and then you look up and you get this recognition and we haven't even talked about the runway or the opportunity that you see but from a from a people standpoint it sounds that you've also figured out what you think works and that gives you puts you in the best position as possible to continue to bring along as many people as you can to fulfill this growth and this optimism that you see. Is that a fair statement? Oh yeah. And, and, you know, our, you know, 
it's hard to to fathom, you know, how great the last few years have been for sure. But I mean, I'm also going to say I, I feel so just I don't even know. I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word. I mean, just pumped, you know, to be real cheesy. I'm pumped about the future that we have in supply chain, you know, and the place that we're trying to fit and the market that I see that we can we can really corner in a lot of different ways by leveraging exactly all the things that you said that we do best. I, I think that that's exactly our mission in, in what we can do. And, and I'm, I'm not just excited for us, like, you know, just as a, a, a owner of, of the entity, I'm excited about the people and what we're going to be able to do for them too, because I think that there's a lot of great opportunity for the company and the people that work here because we, we've got the right sauce working. And to tie it back into the people, the people that are along for the ride, and glad to be there. They feel challenged. They feel that their own skill sets are growing, but they feel they're a part of a very optimistic and entrepreneurial environment. Yes. And in one, you know, right now, um, to what you're saying, we're still a family run business, right? And I think people enjoy a, a, a well run family business, to say the least, right? I mean, you could have a, a poorly run family business that doesn't really care about the people who work for them, I guess. But um, I think people see that we're being genuine with trying to develop opportunities for people that that want them and want to continue to grow, and and I think that makes a I think that makes for a for a healthy environment, right? Yeah. Something that I've just heard over and over again is that former corporate people that try to be entrepreneurs are at times not successful because they're not willing to do every job there needs to be done to execute to get it to the next place because they come from a place of corporate cushion and just some more arrows in the quiver, so to speak, than what kind of a hustler, entrepreneur, low resource person has to navigate. Then conversely to that, it's rare for an individual entrepreneur operator that can take a company from one truck to a billion in revenue, all those people, all those responsibilities, and be able to handle that much capacity. What do you think has given your father, even with having all these incredible people now, what's given him the skill set, one out of a thousand, one out of 10,000, 100,000, I don't know what it is, to be able to, to get it from there to here today and still with everything that's going? You know, um, that's a great question. I think... To, to, to shed a little bit of light on why it's harder for somebody in corporate America to start their own business and be an entrepreneur. I think the, the reason behind that has got to be they might feel like they've got other options, right? So an early entrepreneur like my dad, who started in college, you know, and was doing this while he was at the U of M until he he dropped out um, and just to, to start, you know, really full time on this. He didn't have another option. He was going to make it work. He didn't have this big, you know, savings account that he could just draw on to, to do what he was doing. He was, hey, I'm going to deliver this load. I'm going to call to make sure this driver's on time because if he doesn't and my customer doesn't pay me, then I'm not going to make rent this week, <laughs> you know? So he's in that desperation mode, making those decisions and driving him to that success and feeling that pressure early. He, it's not the other side of things, right? Um, and he had the the a lot of support from my mom and, and and those around him to help do all that stuff. So so don't get me wrong, that's a that's a real 
real thing too, but feeling that pressure, I think in our society today, people don't do pressure well, right? There's a, a sense to say, oh, man, I'm just so anxious about this, right? And I need to go medicate myself to not feel so anxious. And I know that there's probably a lot out there that need to be that way. I'm not trying to say it's not, but, you know, for the entrepreneur, the pressure is a good thing. The pressure to perform and show up is uh, going to drive you to do something different. If it's not working, feel the pressure, figure out something else, you know? So it's never made you crack. It's You've always had that optimism that tomorrow's going to be better and, yeah. you're, and you have no plan B. So your options are go until I can't go anymore and I'm, I'm physically limited through bankruptcy or whatever it may be <laughs> yeah. or keep showing up and it's going to get better. Right. I mean, there's probably a lot of sayings about this, but everybody thinks that the entrepreneur is completely delusional until it works, you know, <laughs> and then it works and they think he's great. So that's the, that's the sense that this is. And what you're saying, that's exactly right. You, the world will put the pressure on you to perform and be successful. Your customers, your employees, your debtors, all of those things will continue to put the pressure on, but you got to keep figuring out how to make it work. And to your point, I don't think, I think my dad, has had stressful days, right? He will tell you, I remember him coming home after some of these stressful days, but he never let it get the best of him to where he was saying, you know what, I'm done. You know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I think he always kind of found a way to keep making it work. And and that probably being able to handle that load in a, in a way that can still drive people to, to the right answer, because you're not going to have all the right answers at that time. You know, you got you to let your people do, a lot of the work and help them bring the right ideas to the table. So, you know, that's a, that's a big point too, but you know, your characteristic that you're looking for is probably disciplined load bearing weight. How about that? That's a good one. But as a result, what you're saying that shaped you, that shaped what you're building. And so the pressure doesn't bother you and you're going to figure it out and you feel it's just when it's piling on or you're not sleeping, you're just, you know, you're going to show up and that's a differentiator. Yeah. And, you know, at some point, um, it, 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 I'm a Christian. So if I die from the pressure, that's fine. <laughs> Still a better day tomorrow. Right. I mean, that's what that is. So, uh, it's just, you know, you, you, you keep dredging on until you, until you, you do the same. And I think I inherited a lot of those qualities from my dad. Right. I would definitely say that that's, that's something I think that we're a lot alike in is that, we're able to get mad and upset about a certain situation, but, you know, after we kind of let it all out and we work through the options and we pick the best, you know, scenario that we can, we can drive up, we go tackle it and swallow the frog and go to the next one. I read something through it or I heard something through another interview that you did and I hope I'm right. And if I'm wrong, just tell me, but there's 5% less drivers now than what there was like a year ago or something like that. Is that correct? Yeah. But demand has swelled more than 30%. Is that correct? You know, so yeah, you're, you're right on. So pre-COVID numbers to today, the American Trucking Association has confirmed that we have 5% less drivers, right? And some of that's difficult because you don't know, you know, where they go, right? I mean, the dark side of you could say, well, COVID killed them, you know, and they're just not driving anymore. But partly, you know, they don't have to drive, right? The federal government has essentially laid out enough incentives to the workforce to be able to have a certain segment not working anymore. And that obviously has affected every labor market, not just ours. 
Um, so that's another part of that. And there's probably another, you know, another segment that just said, you know what, I'm ready to retire. You know, we have a, a really old driving workforce. We're not attracting a lot of new people to the industry. And that's been a difficult thing. So to your point, um, we've been in this unique position because there's less supply of drivers. However, the demand is greater than what we were seeing pre-pandemic, which is why prices are where they are. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS, that's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. This podcast is also sponsored by My Story. Have you ever thought about what if you could have your own audio and video interview for someone you love to keep and share for generations to come. What better way to keep and remember the life and story of someone you love than your loved one's own interview in their own voice? This is the perfect way to make sure your loved one's story stays with their descendants for future generations to come. Go to mystorytold.org to learn more. Again, that's mystorytold.org. Dot org to learn more. Now we're going to get back to the show. How do you push the tempo without breaking people? Ooh. Well, with drivers, you can only do so much, right? Because they're, they're limited by how many hours they can drive per day, et cetera. And from a people standpoint, you know, that's a whole other element that we hadn't really talked about is, is trying to recruit the people to come work for you, Right. Um, and, and how do you get that person to work an extra, you know, 20 hours a week, you know, there's a big difference in a 40 hour week employee versus a 60 hour week employee. We try not to go too much, you know, you don't want anybody really working 80 hours a week. Cause I think statistically there's a huge drop off in productivity after about 50, 60. And the important thing is, is how efficient can you be inside those hours? Right. A 60-day work week doesn't look like the same thing for everybody, <laughs> right? You can be super productive in a 60-hour work week, or you can make a lot of trips to the water cooler, do some, you know, smoke breaks and lunch breaks, and really only work about 30 hours a week. So to that note, you know, your point is, is kind of well taken. How do we incentivize to get the most out of that? And, and one is having a high-energy workforce, right? Being able to play that music loud means a lot. You know, if somebody's going to stay after five o'clock, you're going to buy dinner for them. Sure. I absolutely will, you know, sit in that seat, stay till six, we're ordering pizza. We're all going to get this project done. And another thing to that is we, for the stuff that happens after the normal working hours, what we do is we outline, you know, 
number one, we never make anybody stay to keep their job. Okay. Most of this stuff is if you've got a few, you know, look, we're going to do this project over the next two or three days. You can either do it at your house or you could um, stay late or come in early, you know, but we got to get this thing done. And we don't really care if you get it done during work hours. That's fine. Right. Keep doing your normal job while we knock out this big deal. But we're all working on this thing together. And, you know, we'll split that up. And from the, you know, our leadership team from the top down, we'll, we'll work on a certain segment thing and while other people work on their piece. And, you know, we all kind of report back saying, hey, I'm done, boss. You know, I'm, I'm ready to go. And that, you know, the secret sauce there would be we are working as a team on a big project to accomplish something together. Right. And then we share in that success together. Right. We say not necessarily from just a monetary standpoint that we were able to accomplish something like a big freight project that came in or working through a vendor statement that's kind of gotten out all upside down out of whack. This has been here's a very tactical thing that we can split up and divide and work as a team to knock out. So we feel the success of a team by doing that. I hear you. You've got three kids in your early 30s. So am I. And obviously, I know your wife, because you and I have known each other a long time, but you're talking 50, 60 hours a week, which I bet you frequently can work more than that. And I, and I can too. But right. how have you, at a young age, knowing just how frequent divorces are with people that entrepreneurs are heavy in their career or people that experience success in business, how have you been able to navigate that personally with such a young family while also being given so much responsibility while also having so much optimism and excitement about what you're building and what you're working with and who you're working with? You know, number one, I am blessed beyond all measure about who I married. Right. Um, and you know, it's funny. Um, you, you think you love somebody when you're married 12 years ago, right? You think that you have this like, you know, perception of who this person is and, 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 and how you feel towards them. But I mean, it really just pales in comparison to where you are, you know, the, the 12 years later. And we've had, we've had our fair share. Melania and I almost, I swear to you, got divorced in, when I was in Kansas City working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week in Kansas City. And she was by herself. She didn't have any support, didn't have any, you know, really quality activities to kind of keep her busy, right? Like raising kids and, and, and working jobs and all that. It was very difficult for her because I basically plucked her out of the South, moved to Kansas City and, and just worked my butt off there for four years, um, learning the business and, and trying to grow a terminal out there. So to your point, I think, you know, how do I kind of manage that? Number one, I've got an incredible wife that is somebody who what I would tell you, I love very deeply, but I think one of the best qualities she has is that she makes me the best version of myself, right? And I'm probably stealing that from some movie that I watched and I'm not sure what it was, but, you know, she is my iron that sharpens my iron um, and, and drives me to be better every day. I'm also a really lucky guy to think that um, I don't, really enjoy truly doing a lot of other things except building my business. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have, right? So it's, it's not only my, uh, my, my work, but it's my hobby and my love and my passion too, right? Because 
I'm able to kind of mix in a lot of different things, right? Uh, I love freight. I like the people that work it. I like the employees I deal with and the customers I work with, right? So there's a lot of really enjoyable things I do with that. So um, do I go fishing every once in a while? Yeah, I love to go fishing. I love to go outdoor stuff and and, and hang out with my kids. I, I was able to coach my, my kid and uh, Crawford, my oldest kid in football this year, which was a lot of fun. But really what that looks like is I'm leaving work a little early, missing a project or two, coaching him, coming home, grabbing dinner, trying to spend a little time with Mulaney, then maybe spending two or three more hours kind of grinding through something to check on something or make a call to talk to somebody, see how something went. The demands on me are a little less than they were, you know, two or three years ago. But, you know, that's kind of the routine, you know, and if you if you truly enjoy reading or watching a lot of binge TV, this might not be the right job for you, you know, because that's that's really not what I like. I hear you. Good spot for you to be in with what you're talking about and to pretty much say, I have no other hobbies. And But then at the <laughs> same time, you're talking about your marriage and your family. Not a lot no. of time for distraction. That's true. So you work with some very large brands. I mean, I, I hadn't talked to you in probably over a year, but I remember a conversation that you and I had about a very you know international brand. And I know there's just a list of them, but how, I'm, I'm sure that you've had to, you know, you've built these over time, you've scrapped them out, you've tried to be given a shot, then you try to over deliver and then you stack them up, stack them up, stack them up. And if I'm wrong on anything, let me know. But how have you been able to seize opportunity while also experiencing such a shortage of drivers while still at the same time making people happy and keeping them? Yeah. What I've been, I've been pitching lately has been um, how do we get more efficient with the drivers that we work with? Right. And the issue that we're having is, you know, you, you wind the clock back to, to two years ago, kind of pre pandemic stuff. And we're, our drivers are able to do five and six turns a day, you know, different markets, but maybe Memphis is a great one to talk about. We can do five or six turns a day. And how do we service those clients with less drivers, but more demand on that freight, right? And, and to your point, we've got big time customers who have more freight coming in. And do we look at them and say, well, I'm only going to take a certain percentage of your stuff <laughs> or do we want to take it all? And I'm kind of an all or nothing kind of guy. I, I don't like to, to, to share, you know, with somebody kind of coming into the hen house, looking at my customers. So, you know, we made a commitment to take it all. We're going to take it all. And, you know, the, the thing that we've decided is, is that we just need to be more efficient. And, you know, how do you be more efficient is a, is a tough question to ask. One of my favorite stories of all time was the manure crisis in New York City. I think it was in the early, like probably 1904, 1903, something like that. Early 1900s, New York City is basically every week, headlines are, we are running out of place to put this horse manure. We have so much horse manure in the streets of lower Manhattan and Times Square. We expect that based on this growth rate, there will be eight feet of horse manure lining the city streets that will drown children and everybody. <laughs> I mean, this is like literally what the, the engineers of the city were doing because they couldn't get rid of it fast enough. They had no infrastructure to get rid of it, right? Horses just, you know, took a crap on the side of the street and, and where they were walking all the time. 
So everybody's, what are we, how are we going to solve this problem? Well, I mean, the automobile was made, you know, 15 years earlier than this, you know, but no one could see that this is the answer to this problem. And a lot of people lack either the vision or just the, the courage to implement some of that stuff. And we did relatively the same thing. We've been doing this, what we're calling a, a smart stack in LA for a long time. And what we were doing is instead of us going in to pick up containers in this Jenga-like manner, right, where we have to move three or four to get to one, we were saying, look, I want all of our freight that we're coming to pick up, we're going to put it in one spot. Can you control that at the port? Can you tell them that? Yes, you can. And they're, they're, they they want to do it too, which is which is striking because... It's efficient for them. Yeah. It, it, imagine doing three times the work for every container that came in when you had a better option to do, you know, a third of that. Yeah. So what we did is we took that kind of methodology and we said, look, we don't want to do it just on a certain number of containers anymore. We want to do it for every container we have. We want to be able to not only do it customer specific, we're going to do it for every customer we have. It, there, there was a, a few kind of obstacles to get this done. One would be, you know, that you got to have a customer who has enough volume. They all have to be dying to one location and you have to do what's called block stowage in the origin port, which is very difficult to have because you're trying to tell somebody to store your cargo on a boat in a certain way that will work for you better at destination. Well, the guy at origin in Hong Kong could give a rip who you are, <laughs> why you're doing this, because after he's loaded the boat, he's done with it. He has no other incentive to do anything else. So getting that done is kind of difficult. And then you have to have the scale of a, you know, top 10 importer to have enough cargo on one vessel to put this stack together. And then you have to have enough scale with not just the enough cargo, but enough scale at one DC to be able to take all that cargo in. And so what we've decided to do is saying, hey, we're going to go get all of these different customers and bring them in and share that efficiency with not just our top 10 importers, but everybody who wants to participate. So we don't have to worry about how it's stowed. We don't have to worry about the volume and we don't have to worry about where it's going because we're going to do some dynamic dispatching when the guy shows up. He's going to be able to take the first container out and be able to deliver that no matter where he is or where it's going. Have y'all doubled your revenue within the last two years? Yeah, we have. And, um, you know, <laughs> more than that. We've done more than that. So if you looked at what we were doing in, before the pandemic, we were running at about 300, 400 million. And if you annualize what we did over the last six months, we'd be at like 1.2 billion. So, we, you know, really what you could say is, is we, you know, we doubled and then we doubled again. You know, just just nuts in terms of the growth based on what we're doing. But you need volume. You need to work with people that are moving the most freight through these lanes to make this happen. So you're very confident in what you're able to tell these brands. And I guess to kind of go from again from the bottom up, to some degree, you're so aligned internally and from knowing intermodal all the ins and outs of four decades that you're moving a lot faster and you're being a lot more aggressive than these huge, some of the biggest transportation companies in the world because they're, they can be bureaucratic or they can have a lot of layers and they can have people in there that don't know transportation. 
maybe as well, or maybe a lot of them know it really well, but they're not aligned. And so you're able just to kind of bulldog through it, take this opportunity, create real-time solutions and soak up a ton of revenue, a ton of loads. Yeah. You're, you're, so we are taking market share too, but your, your point's really valid. I mean, we're, our company is in the sweet spot of not being too big to disrupt ourselves or being afraid of doing something different, but we're, you know, small enough to be able to jump on these opportunities because we see them. Right. And we're able to see this stuff and we've done all that. So it makes it, you know, why would we not do this? This makes the most sense. Right. And we can prove it with some data and we have enough credence in the, in the industry to say that we are able to deliver what we're saying. We're not just saying it just to say it right. There's, there's some real hard facts about this. There's results when we, when you do this. Have you ever thought about selling? That's a difficult question because there's some things that could happen if we were to sell to a partner that uh, could bring more things to the table, right? One, we we don't have to have the money, right? I don't think um, that's something that we have to have because uh, we, you know, we're not, I don't think we really live these overly lavish lifestyles, but um, so if we were to sell tomorrow, the idea that we would want to have is a partner that could help continue the growth trajectory of what we're doing. Um, certain private equity companies might be able to bring in, hey, there's this new you know, technology we'd like you to pilot. And we say, well, that's great. We'll take that in. Or there's this new acquisition opportunity that you guys weren't thinking about. We want to pair you all together to make this thing work. In a scenario like that, I think we would take a really hard look at it, but we're not actively looking to um, sell the entity or, or anything like that because, you know, we're not in a position where we have to and we still enjoy what we're doing. You You're know? having so, fun. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun. That's a lot. That's a great way to put that. Right. And that would be a that'd be a big thing to play with. And, you, and you're proud of what you built. Yeah. And you see the opportunity of all these of what can pay off. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think your end game is? I got a lot. I got a lot longer than my dad. My dad, uh, he just turned sixty last year, so he's, what he got two he got, sons. <laughs> yeah, I got two sons. Okay, um, and a daughter who's probably the toughest one out of all of them. But you got um, sister and you know other. I don't know if any other family in the biz. Yeah, so my dad is looking at retiring sooner than I am. Obviously, um, <laughs> he doesn't want to give me a date, but you know he might he might continue to own the business or he might. Um, spin it off and do something different with the kids. The the transition, I think there's a lot to be worked out. So, um, however, I think one of the end games, I think for the company itself, is that um, if we could figure out some of the things that I think our competition has been trying, but not maybe not able to, like the app, the 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 app approach to this business, uh, I think we've got a good good plan and good runway for that. And if we were to have the success that we think we can with it, we might talk about doing an IPO one day, something like that. Um, we've we've kicked that around, but you know, normally when you do an IPO, you need money for something, right? It's not just a um, hey, we got this all figured out. We we'd like an IPO to cash out. Um, so we're not sure yet. There's a lot of there's a lot of possibilities out there, but what we want to do is stick stick true to our values of being entrepreneurial, as well as taking care of our employees. And and I think that's kind of the 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 priorities we have right now. I hear you. So what I saw, and I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but 
LA is obviously the biggest port in the United States, but it's the 17th biggest in the world. Long Beach is the second biggest port in the United States, but it's the 22nd biggest in the world. Several in, you know, China, Singapore, Netherlands, I think I'm missing a country or two at the top. But if you listen to any, you know, market podcast, read anything, Wall Street Journal or any other publication, it's all about the ports and e-commerce. I mean, even my neighbor, he has a parts manufacturing company and he's talking about freight prices going from 6,000 to 24,000 and, you know, time frames taking three to four weeks to six to eight weeks. I mean, that was just on a Friday afternoon, you know, having a beer yeah. or something. But and I can go on about another hundred people, just this stuff over and over again. But are the operations, are the ports in China, Singapore, Netherlands, et cetera, are they as inefficient as the United States? Well, there's probably, that's a really loaded question that is a really fair question though, right? I mean, what I would tell you, if you looked at um, the amount of time that it takes a container to be lo- unloaded from a vessel and out of, you know, into the marketplace, it would be, they, they would probably rank, you know, the, stat, the stats would show you that they're, well over 300, you know, best in the world, which is pretty embarrassing because we're the U.S. We're supposed to be the best at everything. Biggest importer in the world. Right. So we should be the best at that. And you, the next follow-up question to that would obviously be, well, why is that? Why are they so bad at their job? You know, they're just taking containers off of a boat and putting it on, you know, concrete and trucks are coming in to pick this stuff up. I would tell you that there is a whole host of just com complex, you know, factors that make that difficult. And Joe Biden, who was the first president that I think ever talked about our industry in particular, you know, in a lifetime special, um, he, he said it in a way that says, you know, supply chain's difficult. It's pretty complex. And, you know, I would say that's true. You know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that guy says, right? But he is, he, he is, you know, I think he got roasted for saying that. <laughs> but, it is complex. There's a lot of complex issues involved with this. There's a lot of um, in, really strong private companies that make things difficult as well, right? As and, and then you also have this whole idea of longshore labor that makes these things difficult too. I think if you were talking about, you know, Mason, what would you be the true answer here? Why we're so bad at importing goods into LA? One is, is that LA handles, LA Long Beach handle about 40% of the total volume into the US, right? It is a kind of a one-stop shop place for a lot of our cargo. And they're by far the lion's shares, right? New Jersey and Savannah are the are the next ones. Um, New Jersey is not really any better than LA. They're arguably worse, but they have a very similar condition to LA. They're landlocked. You know, if you ever get a lot of free time, what you should do is pull up the LA ports look at where everything's coming in and look around uh, to see there's not any commercial real estate available. (laughs) Everything's landlocked. There's not one piece of land that has not been majorly developed there. So, you know, when they planned that city out in the 60s, I don't think that they were really taking into account what they needed in 2021 and 2022 to support the infrastructure that they need. The U.S. is also very interesting, too, because um, we're the only country in the world that has the rail system that 
is so long and integrated into our daily lives. So, I mean, the U.S. is a big country, but we're we're really a, kind of especially long. You know, from going from L.A. all the way to New York is a long distance, and the only way to really get there is with if you're if you're a piece of freight is via the rail. You know, you can truck that stuff, but that's that's expensive. It's not necessarily uh, eco friendly. So you put it on a rail, but you're talking about a really long rail system that's unlike anything in the country or in the in the world, rather. And um, you, you look at that same distance in Europe, they use rivers, you know, and they use other ports that are closer. So the dray is a lot shorter. So that's what kind of contributes to some of this L.A. stuff, I think, is that we've just way outgrown and outpaced our infrastructure to be able to handle what we're doing out there, um, which is bad news because we're going to continue to grow. So how do you how do you add infrastructure to something that's already kind of landlocked, as well as um, how do you answer the call for tomorrow with more imports that are coming in? That's a big issue. So why do you have so much optimism if ports are out of space, if it's had so much headlines, shipments have been so delayed, wages have already gone up and that's not solved anything, drivers are less. Is it because of that you feel clear on the performance that y'all been able to deliver over the last year or two. So if there's anybody that's going to be able to do it and do it in an innovative and top-notch way, you are. So that you're, from your standpoint, the optimism is like game on because we're going to be we're going to be here and we're going to be doing it. it. It really feels like when you're you know you're standing at a plate and you just knocked a home run out of the park the inning prior and you're walking right up to the plate again and the guy's got one pitch. You know what's coming. Right. He's got a fastball down the middle and you're just gearing up, squeezing the bat, ready to hit it. And that's how I feel right now. I feel I feel that way. And I think my whole team feels that way because the solution to what we're doing is the smart stack peel pile methodology. Right. It's able to get our drivers to not only do two or three moves a day. We want them to do seven or eight moves a day and being able to do that the way that we did it in 2021 and a little bit of 2020 is, is what we're doing. And, and the best thing about that is we got more, we've got more tech and our own infrastructure to support this stuff than we ever had before. Right. I'm in a better spot to handle more business this way than, than I, and then I was in 2021. So I'm very optimistic. I think that we've got the right answer to what the industry needs. And, um, you know, I can't be more thrilled about going into 2022. You know, we've talked about this before, but Malcolm McLean invented the container in what, 1956. And so we're close to 70 years from that. Is the smart stack strategy that you're referencing here, is that innovative enough or would it have to be something like automation and robotics from the set up and, and the loading and then autonomous trucks. I mean, does it have to be something that significant that can actually make a true impact when these ports are landlocked and you have these labor and, you know, regulation issues? Is that drastic enough? I think, you know, um, so, so to your point, we have a problem in innovation in the supply chain, right? There's so many moving pieces. There's so many different motivated parties and, and, just different interests that don't necessarily all align. And what I would say is that, yeah, Malcolm McLean invented the container in the fifties, containerized shipping, the box that changed the world. What was awesome about that is that he was actually a trucker. (laughs) He was a trucker that was sat at the port and said, this sucks, you know, and same problem. 
The problem he was having is, is that, man, when I get here, I spend 12 hours waiting on my um, my freight to get offloaded from the boat so I can leave. It's the same problem we have today, but we have a, huge, a really hard time innovating, right? And as an industry, coming back to that, the 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 next innovation that Malcolm McLean, you know, so Malcolm McLean was in the 50, in 56, but the next innovation in the industry was when in the early, you know, 90s and 80s, they said we should do what's called a stack train. And if, if stack train sounds really sexy and all that, the only thing that they really did was they put one container on the on the bottom and one container on top. <laughs> so yeah. they can move two containers at the same time. So how wild is that? Is that we're all high-fiving each other that we're able to stack two containers on top of each other. So what we're trying to do is be the third layer of that innovation, right? The third layer of that innovation is the smart stack. So to your point, is it enough? I'm going to say that I don't think it solves every supply chain issue in the world, right? Or in the U.S. I think there's other inherent issues that we have. We still need drivers. We still need more infrastructure. But if you're talking to me about, hey, what are you going to do today with your current kind of tool belt to make a difference? I'm going to say I'm all in on this because if I can make my driver, you know, three times more efficient, if I can make my you know, customer have more access to this cargo in a quicker way, maybe different than what they're used to, but better in the in the long run. And then make the terminals be able to be three to four times more efficient with how many lifts they're they're doing each day. I mean, that's a huge win. And that's everybody aligned under the same circumstances to be able to deliver something to the customer and the end, end users because we're all the ones that are really suffering. You know, to your point earlier, you know, the guy that was importing his, his machinery, it went from 6,000 to 24,000, you know? And honestly, people started noticing when it was 6,000. It used to be $1,800, <laughs> okay? So it's it's gone completely haywire here um, for, for how much it costs to do this stuff. So that's one of the reasons why we're having inflation right now. I mean, things are nuts. Are y'all the only people similar to your level or even people bigger than you that are doing these smart stacks? Well, you know, so that's an interesting one. We we were the only ones doing this stuff for, you know, a while, right? How long's a while? Nine months. And then we have we have a there's a few copycats out there that are trying to do it. I don't think they're doing really well <laughs> at it. They don't have the scale that we're doing. And they're not near as what I would say sophisticated, but they're trying to kind of put it together. And you how does that make me feel? I don't know. I mean, some of that's good because if it was a horrible idea, then nobody else would be doing it, you know? Um, so I think it's a good thing that we're doing this. Um, and it's a good thing that other people are trying to replicate it. There's there's a level of being able to do it the right way for a long period of time. I hate anybody to, to have a bad experience with what we're doing. So um, as long as I think the that that's good, friendly competition, I think that's a good thing because the more that that happens, the better the whole industry is. So. And what you're saying is y'all are able to get your metrics back to what they were. Yes. Before these long wait times where people are sitting hours at the port, you're able to get, instead of one delivery a day, you're able to get, what'd you say? You went back six, seven? Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's really that bad. I mean, as wild as that sounds, I mean, imagine, you know, there's great videos out there of people waiting in line to get into the port you know, and then to wait another line to get into the port and then come back out. Right. So, I mean, imagine showing up, you know, to, to be a, 
showing up to get a, a movie out of Blockbuster, if everybody remembers that stuff, and it's a four-hour line in, it's a two-hour line to get your 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 movie and another four-hour line to get out. <laughs> That's what this world was, you know? So instead of waiting to get your lunch, we just said, hey, we're just going to take that first one and get going. And that's made a huge difference. So to your point, yeah, we are seeing those numbers. We it, Those are very real. It's making a huge difference in our fleet. It's making a huge difference for our customers. And it's a huge difference for our drivers. They want to be productive. I think people miss that, right? Who wants to go to work and get nothing done? <laughs> that's the worst experience ever. These drivers are paid to drive not wait in line. And and when you have to order a pizza to be delivered to the side of the road so you can feed yourself for lunch, that's a bad deal. I almost <laughs> had to deal. do that on Monday in the COVID line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's right. That's that, Imagine doing that every day. You know, even if you got paid for it, it, it would suck. You know, and, so nobody really wants to do And that. so the biggest brands in the world, if blank calls they don't really care about the smart stacking. They just know that you're able to turn this volume and this frequency and you can give them the data and you know, the phones are just ringing because everybody's irritated and frustrated and experiencing the pressure. And that's been a lot of the driver of this growth and opportunity because y'all have just continued to find ways to increase productivity when all you hear about in the Wall Street Journal or any other publication and that is about the delays in the, in the bottleneck. Well, it's funny. I, I don't know if people are aware enough of of how we're making the sausage to call us and say, we want this product from you. And I don't know if that's just how dull the solution is because people just don't, you know, feel like it's exciting enough. But what I would say is, is that um, the way that we're taking freight right now is is doing that. So our, our, our phones are ringing off the hook because people want to move freight. They might not necessarily know how we're doing it, which is okay. Um, I'm willing to tell them how we're doing it and why I think it's the best way to do it. But, you know, in the end of this thing, it's, we're still out there marketing this solution and getting new customers and having new folks show up. So, you know, it's a little bit of everything, um, but I, I think it's the right way to do it. I hear you. I saw a statistic that retail e-commerce sales were 365 billion in 2019 and in 2024. So this would be up 64% to close to 600 billion. And if you take that on an annual basis, obviously it's not as you know significant as that 64 because that's annually, but you still, you look at that increase and then I'm hearing what you're saying and you can't, if you can't change the spacing on ports or that's very hard from a regulatory and real estate standpoint, the unions and the wages on the, on the longshoremen and things like that, you've got certain ports that can handle certain amount of ships and you got all this production and importing coming in from Asia in my head, it's just the way we're talking about here. And you look at those e-commerce trends and, and you know, the US being the largest importer in the world, I guess I can see the opportunity that you've referenced and the enthusiasm and the excitement because, you know, you can hear over and over again, people talking about the problems and talking about the issues and kind of passing the buck a little bit. I mean, to some degree, that's human nature. But what you're saying is, you know, what started 40, 40 years ago with one truck you're the sixth, seventh largest, maybe even five, I don't know, largest intermodal company in the United States. And, you know, you're continuing to kind of stack it up in a way to be a voice of change and progress within the limitations that you have. At least that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And, and to your point, yeah, we're, there's a lot of growth coming, you know, um, 
the millennials have gotten into the habit of buying stuff, right? And I think we're seeing a lot of that, which is which is good for our industry and the consumer goods. So, you know, we got to figure out a way to handle that better than what we're doing right now. And, you know, what I'm optimistic about is, is that I think this is the right step to do this. And it's good that we are doing this, but I think there's um, there's more more things that'll come too that that'll be more obvious as we get there. Like what? One would be, and this is this is a longer play, obviously, but we are as a world, you know, look, we have really leveraged China in Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Indonesia to manufacture our goods, right? And there's probably, and that's one of the reasons why LA is going nuts, right? That's who we set factories up with 40 years ago. All of those things have been a um, kind of a, a driver to LA because of the distance, right? It's the, it's the quickest way to the US. It's only like a 12 day transit. I think eventually as those countries continue to go through their industrial revolution and kind of move from more of a production economy to a service-based industry, kind of like the US where they're more consuming, where are we going to get that next labor force, right? And a lot of people are doing it in India, but you, you know, there's probably some other arguments to be made that Africa could be on that list at some point. I read something the other day that uh, I think Mediterranean shipping was working on investing a great deal of infrastructure in Africa on um, kind of tapping into some labor forces there, which would probably be good for that whole continent, you know. But that I think could open up different opportunities for taking out some pressure of LA and letting other ports grow a little bit quicker. Um, so that's a really macro look, right? That's not the sexy idea of like, we're just going to automate everything. I don't see that happening. I really don't even know when you say, how quick could we get driverless trucks? I mean, there's things today that we didn't have five years ago, but I think everybody in the industry is really in agreement that we're not anywhere close to an, a, a truck driving down the road by itself without having a driver. You know? You're talking like two decades, maybe. I think, I mean, if you really want me to put a timeline on that, I think that that could be feasible. You know, you got to look at it like this. I mean, are you really, are you really saving that much money, you know, by not having a driver drive that truck? You know, that guy makes $80,000 a year. And if you annualize that, that's, you know, by that time, maybe $2,000 a week. It's, it's you're but you're able to touch a lot of loads. You get what I'm saying? It's on a, on a scale of what it costs to, to deliver a load in the trucking world, driving wages aren't as a large of a, of a, of a, of a share of that right now. Right. And then the production on those trucks and everything that comes along with it. And then not yeah. to mention the psychological fears of a large semi truck being loaded down, driving with nobody on it. There's a lot of barriers there that no question might can be overcome, but you're saying for really for that man or female power for that wage to that person, What's the right. cost benefit analysis really to it at the end of the day? I don't think it's great. And, and, and maybe, maybe the right way to say that is probably not as good as what people think it would be. Right. But what I hope happens is we're able to attract more drivers to the industry based on it being a little better quality of life. Right. Cause it's, I mean, I, I don't know when the last time anybody pulled it, you know, you're, you, when you pulled like a, a trailer loaded full of four wheelers and a bunch of stuff. I mean, imagine doing that your entire life. You know, that's, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, you're checking your equipment. You are 
being very careful on the road, you're making wide turns, you're, you feel stressed when somebody cuts you off or pulls over the, the whites in the, in, in the intersection. So you got to take a different turn or a different approach. So there's a lot that kind of adds to this that drivers do every day that I hope one day it's going to be a little less stressful for them so we can get more drivers into it. Not to mention, I think we should start looking at lowering the CDL age from 21. We need to start bringing that down to, you know, ideally an 18 year old, right? Right. You've talked about Afghanistan, Iraq, the military, you can do all these things at 18. And why are we not being able to do it here? I mean, you can drive a truck in Baghdad and not get a CDL when you get back. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty sure it's it's worse over there than it is here, right? Um, so, to that point, it, it would be that would be a huge win to start attracting these guys out of high school. And and man, somebody asked me this question the other day, and, and you probably have a better look at it than I do. What does an 18 year old do right now when they graduate and don't want to go to college? I tell you what, I'd be doing. I'd be on an oil rig or a longshoreman. Yeah, that's right. But you know, think about like. So let's just assume that that guy doesn't want to go into his mom's basement and he wants to go out and get a job. You know, does he go work construction, you know, or like he like works on an asphalt crew or like, you know, I kind of think what kind of trade does he learn how to do if he's kind of entrepreneurial? You can't do trucking, right? Which sucks. Why can't you do trucking? There's no reason for that other than, you know, let's let's make the vehicle as safe as we can and start trying to recruit some of these guys to do that. Are y'all big enough? from an advocacy standpoint or from a lobbying standpoint to actually be able to throw your weight around on trying to influence some of this regulation or unnecessary bureaucracy within the system. We, we've tried to do some of that stuff when we see some unfair practices in the industry. Like I said earlier, there's a few uh, private entities that um, really can control a lot of the supply chain in, in a bad way. So we've tried to attack those and, and lobbied, in some level to try to get that going. So we, we're trying to get into that, but that's really not been our game. You know, our game is not trying to, to change laws, but maybe one day we can get that to, 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 to be able to throw away around a little bit. Mr. Smith, Fred Smith, he likes to uh, advocate pretty hard for a lot of different things. I mean, one of the things that he was trying to advocate recently for was extending the, the uh, trailer size on doubles to uh, get, get more freight into trailers which I thought was a great idea. Um, I still don't think it's actually happened, but um, it's a little bit outside of my industry, so I have to check. You know, obviously we hadn't even gone into like other types of offerings and technology and real-time tracking and all those things, but from a cryptocurrency standpoint, does that even, does that enter your thinking at all? Do you have any opinion on that and how this ties into global trade, import, export, and transparency and accountability to some degree in line with like what you believe in and your own principles through technology and transparency and efficiency? Yeah, um, I think there's a great place for blockchain in, in what we're doing. And, and I'll tell you, um, being in the intermodal world, there's a lot of different handoffs that we deal with, right? There's a handoff at, okay, this was loaded off the vessel onto the terminal. And this was loaded from the terminal onto the rail. And this was loaded from the rail onto a truck, et cetera, right? There's so many different hand handoff points. And at any given time, you might have at a minimum three or four different parties in a transaction, right? You could have the customer, you could have the steamship line, you could have uh, the terminal operator and you could have the trucker, right? So like at a minimum, you're gonna deal with four, but potentially all the way up to like seven or eight, you know? And having everybody on the same page in a blockchain scenario would be fantastic, 
right? Because their data looks a little different than my data. And my data looks a little different than this other guy. So you have all these kind of different combinations of what is the actual truth that happens. And it gets a little difficult to, to, to kind of get the best picture. So in my practice, I think I would love to say if there was this universal blockchain of how data was consumed at every given point and you could go get what you needed for your business, I think that would be great, you know, and, and have everybody kind of looking at the same source of truth. From a cryptocurrency thing, that's a little outside my expertise. I, I don't understand that as well as I probably should. I know a lot of people have made a lot of money in the crypto world. I have not owned one Bitcoin, you know, whatever that, you know, all the different deuter the things. Dallas, there. Ethereum, yeah. <laughs> Dogecoin. All those things. I don't know. I don't know in any of those things. And, uh, you know, um, the for me, it's not that I, I, I think that that's just overly risky or anything, but I always get nervous about um, it seems like a politician could just jump out and say, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know, so kind of wipes it away. And you're like, well, what? That's a difficult thing for me to swallow. Yeah. Are you surprised when you started? And I don't, I'm, I mean, I know you athlete, play multiple sports, but when you started 12, 13 years ago, starting your career or whatever it was specifically, are you surprised where it is today and, and the opportunity that you'll have in the future? Yeah. Oh man. I think that when I first started, I just wanted to have a profitable business that I could have fun doing. Right. And I, I mean, that sounds like all shucks and, and, you know, so surprised we're here, but it's really the truth. I mean, that was the goal is to keep making decisions that we're, we're going to be able to have this kind of living, breathing business that could support itself and, and be a good place to work, right? That's really what I wanted. Um, if you're going to spend, you know, even 30, 40 hours a week at something, like I would hate for anybody to dislike that, <laughs> you know? Like if that's your life, that sucks, you know? It's not it's not worth the lifestyle that you live on the other side of that. And I want to do this as long as I, as I have, as, as long as I feel that way, as long as I have fun, keep doing it. And to your point, you know, no. I didn't think it would ever be like as, as big as it is today. And we're very blessed to have all that. I think it's really fun. And, and being in the position that we are, right, that's even more fun, right? One thing is that, you know, yeah, we're, we're growing. Our, our people love it. And we're having a good time here. We're all like knocking each other on our back. We have a huge set of problems. Don't even get me started. Like, it's not all, you know, overnight success. Everything's going great, et cetera. I mean, we were, I was on the phone before you called thinking to myself, man, I gotta, I gotta kind of put my happy face on because I got a whole bunch of issues I gotta knock out at the office next week. But that's all stuff I'm looking forward to kind of tackling, right? It's all good stuff at the end of it. And, and, but more than that, I'm happy to, that our business is in a spot where we can um, make a difference. You know, I think that's probably the best thing. I never thought we'd ever actually be in a spot where I'm able to do podcasts like this and, um, try to tell people what I think about how what needs to change in the industry so it can be better. That's fun. Well, I'm I'm biased. Uh, two nights <laughs> ago, I was listening to this interview on Wall Street Journal. You know, just about supply chain and everything. You know, heard tons of stuff on this all the time. But I'm like, they should have called you, uh, or at least the consultant that they had on that that episode. <laughs> I mean, you just hear the same <laughs> over and over again. I think yeah. we impact more here, and I know you've talked about a lot of other people. No offense to that consultant if he hears this, but uh, last question I got, 
earlier we were talking about Malcolm McLean in the 1950s. You talked about he was a trucker, but yet he revolutionized the industry, you know, close to 70 years ago, created the shipping container itself and, you know, moving freight that way. And from what it sounds like through this interview, you shared highs and lows. You've been incredibly candid in how you've talked through things, but you've also mentioned how y'all built technology from the ground up and y'all know trucking, you know drivers, you want to give them that experience, you want to help them make their loads, you want to create momentum and a tempo and accelerate the pace that drayage moves. So you want to take care of the customer. But you've mentioned like, you know, haven't really ever thought about selling. We don't need it. We're having fun. We like what we're building. But you did mention I could see maybe one day potentially if it made sense, you know, with us keeping our eye on the ball, what would that be like if you actually have a software that works through an IPO? There's a sense of confidence there that, I mean, you talked about your dad dropped out of college, started this company. You have built a billion dollar company. You've talked about confidence in, from the standpoint of adversity. You've talked about the first acquisition that you did that did not go well. What, what's kind of inside or what gives you that kind of confidence to take these chances to do these things at a very high level when a lot of people think that you have to go to that institution or you have to come from that background or you've got you've to be that kind of person if you're going to pull something like that off? Oh, that's a good question. I think that... I've got so much confidence in my team, right? And that goes from, you know, the people that work with me in Memphis every day to the people who are, you know, as far away as humanly possible, the LA guys, right? I love my team so much and how we approach business and how we tackle obstacles together and how we get input from everybody that it, it feels like I would put my team up against anybody. And I think, having those people around me speaks that confidence into what we're doing. And, um, you know, number one, I think I'm, I'm just honored to be, I'm hesitant to call leader, you know, but I mean, I guess I am. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm pumped that I'm the leader of this team and I'm, that's probably the best thing I could, I could say about myself is I lead a great team of people who approach business in a way that I think is able to tackle these challenges. And the confidence I think is, source from those guys. We know what's going on. We believe we have the right solution and we feel like we've got a pathway and an end game in sight that could really um, rock the industry in a good way and improve drivers' lives, improve customers' lives, improve terminal lives. And I think we've got that. So, so you know, the confidence comes from that. It's um, seeing the vision, having not just a dream about it, but just having a, a way that says, all right, here's our checklist. This is how we're going to get there, right? This domino is a big one. How are we going to fall? This one, the next obstacle, let's get over this hurdle. All of that are daily, weekly conversations with my team. And um, I know we've got a good plan in place. And then we got the, the right guys to get it done. There could be other obstacles, right? But having the right people around you to be able to knock those out and, and you know, set them up, knock them down, go to the next one. I hear you, man. It's been a ton of fun. It's, it'll be very exciting yeah. to see how things continue and unfold, but I also appreciate and respect just the value to the listener and how it affects all of us real time. But then to hear your expertise in a space where 
it's hard to get experienced or legit information that can actually speak to things that are being done to actually move the needle. And then it's, it's very admirable to hear your passion and enthusiasm to be completely focused on this within a space with so many restraints and so many things outside of your control. And uh, it's a lot of fun to see and watch and listen to. Appreciate that, man. You did a great job. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this was a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story in life you'd love to capture in an interview, go to mystorytold.org to learn more. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.